Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. For most of you, our esteemed guest tonight probably needs no introduction. Um, very uh, esteemed actor and now author, Harry Hamlin. Um, we're just thrilled to have him here uh, to discuss his hilarious memoir, Full Frontal Nudity. Um, and so with that, I'd like to welcome Harry and thank you for coming. Thanks for, for showing up um, on this Sunday in October. Actually, my birthday is next weekend. We could have done this then. I think Judd Apatow is really funny. It would have been fun to, uh, to hang out with him. Um, this is the book that, that I'm talking about today. Uh, I'm just going to read a bit about the picture on the front. Uh, and if I, if I can see it, I'm so blind these days. Uh, the picture that you're seeing, uh, it's, it says a note on the cover. My dad died on April 30th, 1982, while watching the CBS Evening News, anchored by Dan Rather. My mother, by the way, thinks that Dan killed my father and thought that until the day she died. Two weeks later, I received a box with some of his belongings. Among them was the wallet he had in his pocket when he died. I went through it and found this photo of me sandwiched between a couple of credit cards. It's the only picture of me that he ever carried. He kept it in his wallet for 26 years. I was 30 when he died. So uh, obviously, he liked that picture of me and um, my young, innocent self um, before uh, all the other stuff that happened between the pages of this book happened. I don't think he would have wanted this picture in his wallet, <laughs> which is my mugshot. Um, I, I, I decided to write this book uh, after I was stopped at the border going into Canada to do a film. And uh, I happen to live in Canada. I have a home there. And I've got a, a, a place, a cabin. All my kids have been going there for years. And I've been going there for 50 years. And uh, I was going across the border. And this young border girl, uh, customs agent, with very cool glasses and a very cool haircut, but then a very black customs uniform, um, stopped me. And, and, uh, and I, when I went up to her, I said, I. I I'm here to work on Harper's Island. I need to get my work permit. And she said, she said, oh, really? She said, where's Harper's Island? And I said, well, Harper's Island doesn't exist. It's, it's, it's in a script. And she goes, wait a minute. You're telling me you're going to work on a place that doesn't exist? And I said, no, I'm going to Harper's Island. I'm going to work on Harper's Island, which is a, a TV show. And she said, well, but where's Harper's Island? And I said, well, but. Harper's Island is in the story. She said, well, that's okay, but I want to know where it is. I can't let, give you a work permit unless you tell me where you're going. And I said, well, I'm going to Vancouver to work on Harper's Island. She says, I never heard of Harper's Island. Where is it in Vancouver? You know, and, I, and this went on for so long. And, and finally, I, I said, you know, it's a story. It doesn't exist. She said, you can't be going to work in a place that doesn't exist. And I said, well, it, here's the thing. You know, I work in the movie business, and a lot of things in the movies don't exist. And she, finally, it began to sink in. And she said, okay, well then, where's, where's your paperwork? And I said, well, what, what paperwork do you need? And she said, well, I, I need the standard paperwork. 
for getting a work permit. And I said, well, I've gotten you know, at least 15 work permits to work in Canada. I've never shown anything except my passport. What, what else do you need? She said, well, I, I need your paperwork. I said, okay, what? She said, well, I need, I need your proof of education. I said, my proof of education, and, and that's for what reason? She said, well, because if I gotta be, we've got to prove that you're, you're eligible, that you're qualified to do this job. And I said, well, okay. I went to Yale. I graduated 35 years ago. I, my diploma has long since like disintegrated or been filed away, and if I have no, I haven't seen it in 35 years. She said, "Well, I'm sorry, you can't come in the country unless you have it." And I said, "Well, but I live in the country. You know, I have a house here. I pay $30,000 a year in property taxes for my house here." And she said, "I don't care about that. You have to have your proof of education." And I said, "Well, I'm sorry. What do I do?" I said, "Go on IMDb." You know, you can go on the computer, that will have my whole history, and you can find out who I am. She says, that's not the way it works here in Canada. So then she said she wanted a signed contract. I said, well, I was hired yesterday. You know, I flew in from my place in Toronto, and I'm here. And, and she said, well, well, I can't let you in without a signed contract, at the very least. And I said, well, I haven't even seen the contract yet. You know, that's not the way it works. And she said, that's the way it works here. Anyway, this went on and on and on, and finally, she said, okay, I'll, I'm going to cut you a break. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'll, get you, I'll give you your work, but you pay the $135 over there, but I've got one more thing to do. She said, take a seat. I'll be back in 10 minutes. She came back 10 minutes later with a big smirk on her face, and she said, well, Mr. Hamlin, tell me about these felony convictions of yours. Well, she'd done a 40-year background check. And sure enough, in Berkeley in 1970, I was arrested for felony possession of narcotics. However, I didn't have any narcotics on me, and I was never convicted of felony possession of narcotics, but I was arrested for felony possession of narcotics, and that's all she had in her computer. So she said to me that I would never be allowed to enter Canada again until I cleared this little issue up. She said, you got to go back to the judge and get a letter from the judge saying that you didn't actually get convicted of this crime. Well, the judge died in 1978. <laughs> yeah, so there was no judge to call. And, there was, and, and, and I went back, I came back to L.A. and I hired a lawyer. And I said, I, I, I have a home. My kids are in Canada. I, I can't go back until I, until I, I said, what do I do? She said, well, we'll, we'll call up all the courts and we'll find out. You know, because I was then arrested um, in, in three years after that, in, in 1973, I was arrested in East Hampton for sleeping on the beach. Um, and while I was, while the police were cleaning up the sleeping bags, they found a little roach of marijuana, and, and they said, "Okay, whose is this?" And we, I, it wasn't mine. And I, we all looked at each other as we don't know. And they said, "Okay, we're arresting all of you for felony possession of narcotics." So we were all arrested again, and I had these two felony arrests on my record. And uh, the only time I've ever been in East Hampton, New York, I spent most of the night in jail. <laughs> Which was, which was, uh, which was fun. I mean, they say East Hampton is pretty cool, you know. Um, I got a lot of friends who have houses there that cost more than thirty million dollars, but I, uh, I've only been there once, and uh, it was behind bars. So uh, I don't know if any of you have been to East Hampton or not, but I highly recommend the jail. <laughs> it's really cool. Um, so I, anyway, I, I was inspired to, to, um, to sit down and write and chart the uh, evolution um, 
from this guy to this guy. Okay, um, and I, I wrote about the things that happened between the time I was four years old to when I was 25. And when I was 25, and the reason this is called full frontal nudity, there's a couple reasons why, and I fought like heck with uh, Scribner um, to change the way this looked here, because you really can't read it, but I like Scribner because they published some really cool authors, like Ernest Hemingway and stuff, so I went with them. But um, I did a play called Equus. I don't know if any of you have heard of this play or seen it, but, uh, but when I was 25, I played the boy in Equus, which is how I got my equity card. It was the first job I ever had. And um, the good news was it was one of the greatest parts ever written for a young man. The bad news was that I had to spend the last 20 minutes completely naked on the stage. And so um, hence the full frontal nudity part. Um, Sometimes, I don't know, I, I mean, I could read a little bit of, of, of this if anybody wants to hear a little bit of it. Um, what do you say? Yeah. yeah? I got my glasses on so I can kind of see. Um, my dad was a rocket scientist, too, in Pasadena. And uh, I actually found, I was going through some of his old papers, and I found, um, I found a patent that he was given in 1958 or 59, and, and the artwork for the patent is right here. And I don't, you can't really see it from there, but it's a rocket engine um, that my father designed. He worked for North American Aviation and Rocketdyne, Caltech, and JPL, and he worked with an ex-Nazi named Werner von Braun on rockets. And my father designed this engine here, which ended up becoming what was called the F-1, which was the rocket that took the astronauts to the moon in the Apollo during the Apollo program. So I, I found this. Old, he got and then the, the kind of cool thing about this letter from North American Aviation is it says um, a patent application um, on a rocket engine starting method was filed in the U.S. Patent Office recently for Mr. Hamlin. Mr. Hamlin's cooperation with the members of the patent section with respect to supplying information concerning his contribution to the solution of a problem encountered at North American Aviation with its field activities is greatly appreciated. Uh, please find enclosed a check in the amount of $100 less standard deductions. So standard deductions were probably close to 50% in those days. So I'd say my dad made about 60 bucks on making the biggest rocket engine that ever happened. It was uh, been made in the history of the world. <laughs> so I didn't see any of that 60 bucks, by the way. <laughs> so, um, but I, I, he was a rocket scientist, but he was also um, pretty screwed up, too. Um, here, I'm going to read. I'm going to read quickly. There aren't any kids out there. I'm going to read quickly. Just a, a little something, something, and uh, and this is called from an early chapter, and it's called Spot. And there's a little picture of me when I was like three or something. So, so when I was three, we got a dog from the pound. I was terrified of dogs and spent the first few days of dog ownership climbing around the house on top of the furniture lest I be devoured by the pudgy female damnation now prowling the rooms of our Pasadena craftsman house. My parents named the dog Spot. And if they'd had an ironic bone in their bodies, I might have considered such a moniker for a Dalmatian cool. 
but alas, they were Republican and seriously Republican, and as a result, I always considered the choice quite lame. This whole package, the whole Hamlin thing was somehow lame in my three-year-old judgmental subconscious, and I included myself in the whole lame Hamlin package. At the time that we got spot from the pound, the American military-industrial complex had just finished up with World War II and was working on the tail end of the Korean War, and the industry was still punching out shell casings and hadn't gotten around to doggy bowls yet. So we had to get creative when it came to feeding the dog. It's half can of horse meat a day. Now that was pretty much all that was on the menu for dogs in those days. As I recall, it was cow can horse meat, a tasty treat that Spot was kind enough to share with my father from time to time after he'd had a particularly long night out on the town. I would stroll into the kitchen around 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning and there would be Dad bleary-eyed with a silver fork in his hand, rooting around for the perfect morsel of horse flesh in the nearly empty can of cow can. Spot would sit next to him, drooling and wondering why the human was putting her food into his mouth. My father had peculiar tastes and, like Leopold Bloom, ate with relish the inner organs of beasts and fowls. Our refrigerator was stocked with everything from pickled pig's feet to calves' brains, which he made us all eat as a ritual Christmas morning breakfast throughout my childhood. We fed Spot her horse meat in all manner of containers and bowls from the kitchen until we finally settled on a metal deep dish bread pan that was just the right size and had really frustrating right angled edges so the dog would spend hours trying to get the bits that were stuck in the corners. And I now know why dog food is served in round bowls. We endured hours of scraping and clanging as Spot pushed the bread pan all over the back patio. It must have driven her crazy. All that pushing and scraping though meant that the pan had a relatively short shelf life and we got her a new bowl around twice a year and retired the old bowls into the garden shed for some unknown future use. My parents had been through the depression and a couple of world wars and you just never threw anything away. It was one of those discarded bread pans that contributed to my first big life mistake. It was around the time that we got spot that I discovered I, I had a very, very small penis. I have a vivid memory of one of the nursery school teachers teaching me how to shake the last drop of urine off my tiny penis. She had the audacity to actually take my minuscule member between her enormous red nail polished thumb and forefinger while I stood before a huge floor length urinal and shake, shake, shake while she said in a very vo sexy voice, that's it, shake it, shake it until you get the very last drop. Now the male member at age three and a half has about the girth of a Ticonderoga number two pencil and is about an inch long in its flaccid, flaccid state, which is customary uh, until around a year later when it starts to get erect in the mornings for no particular reason. If a man is lucky, it will continue to behave that way forever. The fact not, that fact notwithstanding, the sight of my little pencil dick being grasped by the gigantic thumb and forefinger of my 20-something nursery school teacher has forever inoculated me with a sense of inadequacy. And from that moment, sex, urine, red nail polish, and the notion that my penis was way too small have been inexorably connected. Perhaps it was this twisted idea that sent me off on my criminal path it certainly led me to my first big lie, one that has haunted me for 
54 years, and one that, thank God, removed the urine part from the above sexual equation. Who knows what, at what point children recognize their sexuality? I've often wondered if boys start getting those twinges before girls and how those twinges might manifest themselves. I once had a girlfriend who revealed to me that when she was eight, she slathered her vagina with Bosco and let her basset hound lick it off. Now, since hearing that, I've never looked at basset hounds quite the same way, but thankfully the story had no effect on my opinion, opinion of vaginas, and I still enjoy looking at them anytime I can with or without chocolate sauce. Um, I could go on, but uh, that's kind of the flavor of the book. Uh, you get it. Um, and then you find out um, really, I mean, some, you know, a quite serious rift uh, be, uh, developed between my mother and me um, because of a, an incident involving the dog bowl and my urination. Um, anyway, uh, that's, the, that's sort of the tenor of the book. And if, if you guys I mean, have any questions at all, I'd be happy to answer them. Um, it also describes a, a stint I did in jail, um, the fact that I was kicked out of Berkeley after two years there and, and ended up uh, being transferred to Yale by the dean of men at Berkeley, even though I was thrown out of the university um, for running a brothel. Uh, any questions on that note? Um, I described that, actually, it's interesting that you asked that in the book. He was also a really good mechanic, my dad, and the day that I was supposed to go off to acting school on a full scholarship, he, he took the distributor head out of my car <laughs> and hit it um, so that I would not leave. He hated the idea. My parents both um, discouraged me until the end from going into acting, and I had absolutely no support from them along those lines at all. Uh, um, but I didn't know how to do anything else, so I mean, it was actually a good decision. You had a question back there? Yeah, um, so I don't know why, but it, it sounds like you had a complicated relationship with your father that <clears throat> most people have with their father. Um, how do you think he shaped like, the choices you made? Well, I, I write in here, um, you know, if I could, I don't know where it is, but. Uh, he, he uh, when I was maybe 12 or 13, he came to me and he said, son, uh, we need to have a talk. And I thought, well, okay, here we go. It's going to be the birds and the bees. And of course, at 12 and 13, I felt that I knew much more about the birds and the bees than he did, which I probably did. Um, but instead, he took me into his study and he sat me down and he said, he said, son, um, there's one thing that you have to know, and it's the, the most important thing that I can tell you about life, is that, and he said, I don't want you ever to forget this, the most important thing about life is that there are no such thing as feelings. Feelings are an illusion, and while you're having them, you're not actually having them. It's, uh, it's an automatic response that uh, the chemicals in your body are producing, reacting to a fight or flight 
um, sensation. And I think he read a book called Psy uh, Psycho-Cybernetics, which was very popular back in the 60s. Uh, and I think that somewhere embedded in that book was this notion that feelings were simply chemical reactions that were taking place between the synapses in our brain and that they were not to be taken seriously. And I say in the book, and the, and the funny thing is that, that I remember that moment so completely that I can, I remember the way the sun was coming through the windows and the dust particles that get caught in the sunlight at certain times of the day. And I remember that ex explicitly. And, uh, and I remember looking at my dad, you know, this guy who had invented a rocket engine using only a slide rule and a crank slot machine. And, and I, I looked at him and I, and I just said, Jesus, I mean, in my brain, I didn't say this to him, but I said, I said, you're full of shit. You know, I mean, I lost, I lost 80% of the respect I had for my father in that, that single moment. Uh, and on the other hand, and I say this in the book, there have been times when I, I, I have not necessarily been suicidal, but some feelings were so deep in me because of some traumatic emotional events that had happened in my life that I, that I felt helpless, I felt almost suicidal, and I felt like I needed some release somewhere, and I, and I kind of almost wanted to go back to what he said and, and go, okay, Dad, maybe you're right, maybe this is just nothing. And, and, I, and, and when I wake up tomorrow, it's all going to be just nothing. And so I, now, as I'm older and I look back on it, and I think of all the psychotropic drugs that people take and all the antidepressants that people take and how the serotonin works and blah, blah, blah. I mean, certainly there is some truth to the fact that depression is chemical, um, if we're talking simply about depression. But feelings, on the other hand, I think feelings such as love and compassion and empathy those things are not ephemeral and they are not uh, illusion. So there you go. Did that answer, answer that one? Okay. You so clearly have a way with words and a talent for writing. Is this your first writing project? This is. Um, aside from some uh, things that I wrote in college, you know, uh, that usually I had taken like dexedrine or something to get through, uh, as we used to do in college. Um, but I, you know, I, I had no expectation that I was going to actually write a book. Uh, I just sat down to kind of write some thoughts about this thing that happened in Canada, and they, the things started coming out, and the the, uh, the just absurdity of some of the things that happened in my life uh, just began to manifest on the page, and um, you know, particularly getting kicked out of Berkeley, which uh, I'd forgotten all about, and, and Ronald Reagan had a big hand in that because he was governor of, Cal of California at that time, and the governor of California is the head of the Board of Regents of the University of California. And it just so happened that uh, I was fairly responsible in my sophomore year at Berkeley and was, was tapped to be the president of my fraternity which I wasn't in a fraternity, I was renting a room in a house that had been a fraternity house, but in 1970 there were no fraternities. People rented rooms in these beautiful houses and you stayed there. And you, in our, our case, it was the Delta Kappa Epsilon house and there was, um, in order to make the rent, in order to pay the landlord, um, we had to rent out all the rooms in the house. But there weren't enough men who wanted to live in a house like that, so we ended up renting out 10 or 11 rooms to women. So we had at the Delta Kappa Epsilon house 
10 or 11 women living along with 10 or 11 guys, and which was a fine arrangement, I must say. <laughs> um, we had a big, uh, the second floor of the deke house there has this one huge bathroom with eight or so spigots for showers, you know, and I got to tell you that, you know, every weekday morning that was a glorious place to be <laughs> for those of us who were young and adventurous and naked in the shower, um, men and women or girls and boys alike. Um, and it was a great arrangement, and we had the highest grade point average of any fraternity in at Berkeley. And every quarter, we would get a letter from the dean of men saying, "Ah, oh, you know, you guys are so great. Look, you have your grade point average is almost twice as high as every other fraternity at Berkeley. You know, don't know how you guys are doing it, but keep on doing what you're doing because it's just great." Well, then we had a fire in the spring of my sophomore year while I was president of, of the Deke House and the fire department came and the Berkeley Daily Gazette showed up at 3 a.m. because there was this big fire at the fraternity house and they were cherry picking girls off the second floor and the third floor in their nightgowns which uh, the Berkeley Daily Gazette had a few questions about. Um, and I got my first national press the following week in, in mainly in the South and I have clippings that go back to then, that time uh, where I was called a, a pimp who was running a brothel in plain sight in Berkeley uh, at the Deke House. Now, Governor Reagan found out about this, and the year before, during the 1969 riots, he had called Berkeley a hotbed of sexual depravity, and this only added fuel to that fire. So he, uh, when he found out about it, he told, called the university and, and uh, the Board of Regents got together and they all said, oh, this, this man must go, you know, and they, they tried to get me kicked out and, and they tried to get me to get the girls to leave the fraternity and I said, no, they've paid their rent under California law, they're capable of staying there, which was true at the time. I didn't know it was true, but I, I was kind of, I was hoping it was true, but it was true. And uh, they couldn't kick any of the girls out and they couldn't close the house down and they couldn't, uh, they couldn't legally um, have me expelled from the university. They could have if there had been computers at that time because the year before I had been uh, arrested on this felony charge and though I was never convicted on the felony charge, I was convicted of misdemeanor possession of dangerous drugs and I did spend a certain amount of time in jail, which is in the book. And if they had had computers in those days, there would have been this cross-pollination and they would have known that I was a convicted criminal and they could have kicked me out on those grounds, but they didn't know that, so they couldn't kick me out. And the dean of men just had me into his office and said, okay, Mr. Hamlin, um, we, we can't kick the girls out of the fraternity house and we can't close you down, but uh, the Board of Regents and I would like you to move along. And I said, what does that mean? What do you say? He said, well, we want you to move along. We want you to relocate. We don't want your physical presence in Berkeley anymore. And I said, well, so you mean you want me to transfer to another school? And they said, well, that's basically what we're talking about. And I said, well, um, Yale. Love to go to Yale. And I was a four-point student. I was, a, you know, on, on, I was ironically on the dean's list at, at Berkeley. And so they, uh, that all happened. And uh, I ended up going to Yale and finishing out at Yale for the last two years. Unbeknownst to the people at Yale, um, I was actually a you know, convicted criminal, had a jailbird in Berkeley, and also uh, had been essentially thrown out of Berkeley. So, uh. and, um, were you the original production of Equus? I was the, the original production of Equus was in London. 
and then it moved to Broadway, uh, where it was, I think, Richard Burton and Peter Firth did it, and then Anthony Hopkins also did it, but then they had the, uh, the third iteration of the play was on the West Coast in San Francisco at ACT, which is where I was a student, and ACT had just won the Tony for the best regional theater in the country, so they had picked ACT as the place to, um, to launch the, the, the West Coast iteration of the play. ACT at the time was all of the big plays that were coming out of the West End in London were going to ACT. It was the only place on the West Coast that was considered good enough. Sure. So if you do a role that's not intense, you know, where you're really plumbing your feelings about depth, how did that affect you emotionally during, you know, you know, like after production, like for a couple hours after you've just done, you know, been on stage or then, you know, a week after? I mean, how did that affect you? Well, I should have bought stock in Jack Daniels, I think. <laughs> um, you know, it was a very emotionally, uh, uh, it was an emotional, assault to do that play every night, which is why the audience was so engaged. I mean, in the play, Equus, uh, I, I play a young lung boy in those days, and I, I had stabbed the eyes out of all these horses in a stable with a hoof pick, and the doctor, a psychiatrist, has, has been charged to find out why I did this, and that's what the play is about. The play starts with me in the psychiatrist's office, and the psychiatrist wants to find out, okay, why did this guy, you know, go like this and blind all of these horses when he supposedly loved them so much. And it ends up that, that um, you know, the young girl who worked in the stables also was trying to get me to have sex with her and um, I, all the horses were watching and I couldn't get it up and so uh, I ended up killing, uh, punching their eyes out. I, the play is not extremely deep, I have to say, you know, on, if you really look at the premise of the play. It's not an amazingly deep play. However, it really gets the audience going and gets them engaged. And, uh, and it was standing room only for the entire two years that we did the run at the Geary Theater, which holds more than a thousand people. And every single night they were up, standing up on their seats, cheering. And uh, it was quite an experience, quite an amazing moment. I cannot uh, help uh, thinking about uh, you know your relationship with your parents and you doing that play and then moving on to become an actor, uh, obviously you did not have the support you know, from your parents. Was uh, so I, you know, if I would have been become an actor and then I don't have to support my parents, you know, coming over and see what type of job I'm doing, that would be very difficult. So was there anyone else in your family that would you know come and see you and you know uh, cheer for you and stuff? From my family, no. No, that was not Basically, that was. Basically, your family became the company that you worked with at uh, times. You know, movie set. Uh, My family. You know, because you don't have mom and dad. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, well, I became very codependent uh, in the first you know, maybe in my 20s. Uh, so I always had a girlfriend. I've always been married. Um, been married three times. <laughs> not exactly proud of that, but. Uh, but my third is a charm. My wife now is, um, I dedicate the book to her, and there's a, said I dedicate this book to my beautiful wife, Lisa, and there's a picture of her naked, and I say, who is no stranger to full frontal nudity. She's been in Playboy twice, so. <laughs> Q 
can't hide that. She did it. But the first time that she did it, I have to say I was very proud of her because she came to me one day. She was eight months pregnant with our first child. And she was doing a show called Melrose Place. And uh, she, they were having to hide her pregnancy. All, you know, she was always walking around with big pillows in front of her and stuff. And, but she came to me and she said, um, she said, yeah, and she, I said, my body is so beautiful right now. This big belly is so, there's something about it that's so magnificent. She said, I've got to show it off. She said, I'm going to call Hugh Hefner and see if he'll put me in Playboy. And I said, Hugh Hefner doesn't put pregnant women in Playboy. You know, I said, he, he does, he's, he's all about recreational sex. He's not about procreational sex. You know, you don't want to mention the fact that there's, you know, there's an, a, there's an after effect to, to a night, nice night of boning, you know, and, and, um, I'm sorry to use that term, but nevertheless, that's the, that's the way it is. So, uh, so she, I have, I give her so much credit because she had her, her costumer um, come into her trailer at Melrose Place, and she took her clothes off, and they took three Polaroids of her naked, uh, you know, with her pregnant belly, and um, she just picked up the phone and called Hugh Hefner and said, "I'm Lisa Rinna, and I'm doing Melrose Place, and I want to send you three pictures of myself naked." And he goes, "Well." I'm used to that. <laughs> and she did. And he did it. I mean, he put her on the cover um, of Playboy and put her inside in a pictorial, you know, nude, but fully pregnant. And that has never happened before or since. And I doubt it will ever happen again. But, um, and, you know, it was a celebration of uh, the female body in the process of, you know, of giving birth. I mean, I, I don't know. She does some amazing stuff, my wife. I'm a very lucky man to have her. Um, so, um, but in, and to answer your question, that my family, my extended family has, has become always my other, my work, people I work with are my wife. And my parents are now dead. Um, and so, and my brothers are, are alcoholics. And I've run interventions on them. And they didn't work, so um, I don't see them either. So I don't, in, my, in terms of family, I don't see them much. Thank you. So. Anybody else? Was your father involved when he was in Pasadena in the whole um, Scientology group that he My father was, no, he was an agnostic. Um, he went to church, though. With L. Ron Hubbard, was that Pasadena? Yeah, it was Pasadena. Uh, well, it's quite possible. Am I, um, in Berkeley, when I was there, there was a big movement there as well. And uh, one of the, there's a chapter in here on this girl that I, I went out with, whose brother became a member of the church back then and is now like no, the way I mean, up. It was really crazy stuff. I mean, it'd be fascinating for you to find out about it. I mean, it was just crazy. They were all having orgies and it was. And Scientologists yeah, were? Scientologists. Really? <laughs> the, the, the people who began Scientology were in Pasadena. They were connected with the um, um, uh, the, the labs that you're talking about, the, or the school. JPL lab? JPL. Oh, really? And, and they were all, meanwhile, so they were doing all this research, and then meanwhile they were getting into Scientology, and yet they were having orgies in some, one of the founders' house burned down. I mean, it's really crazy. I mean, That's wild, and so... so Tom Cruise is kind of riled and crazy then. Wow. I just stumbled on and I was like, oh my god. And you Google one site after another after another and you're like, whoa. Is that right? Well, I'll have to look into that. I mean, it's, 
it's certainly a I mean, freaky one, group. One of the people that was like from this family and they had a huge mansion. And at the mansion was where they were having a lot of orgies. It's sort of like that. <laughs> 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 yeah, definitely. I would think we'd be, you know, I thought she was maybe going to go into that. With the no, because my dad was a, he was a pragmatist and he wasn't a religious man at all. He liked, he liked the church if, it, if the guy at the pulpit was Republican. Right. You know. Yes, no, so. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is fascinating. Huh. Well, I'll have to check into that. Pasadena was, when I was growing up there, it was, uh, you know, all white Anglo-Saxon Protestants and, uh, you know, very prejudiced, very bigoted. I didn't know about anybody doing, having orgies or anything like that. Right. But I mean, I think the guy if they had, I would have stayed, I would have stayed in Pasadena. <laughs> I mean, he came from one of those kind of families. That was uh, the, he came from like a really, you know. A staid, old, yeah, old money yeah, family. Old money. A lot of those in Pasadena, yeah. you know. And then sort of went into this whole sort of, and was a scientist, and I mean, they, anyway, read about it yourself and find out. <laughs> that sounds fascinating. It really does. Um, it um, was quite an interesting process to write this book, and um, and very cathartic at the same time. And there uh, there are a lot of stories in it that. Um, that I, I didn't tell for years and years because I always, as most young American men do, fostered the notion that someday I might make a run at the White House. And uh, I've, I've given up that notion. <laughs> and so hence, it's all here, okay? <laughs> so why don't we, should we sign a few books and then uh, yeah, sort of call it a day? Unless anybody else has any more questions, I'd be happy to ramble on for hours, you know? It's a, Absolutely. Thank you. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.